is looking at you. Welcome to the Here's Looking at You podcast, a podcast where we explore the intersections of gender, sexuality and performance. I'm Dr Ellen Wright, Senior Lecturer in Cinema and Television History at De Montfort University, and I specialise in the representation of gender and sexuality in Hollywood in the first half of the 20th century. In today's podcast, I'm talking with Adrian Smith, Research Associate in Film Studies at the University of Sussex in Brighton. Adrian has been studying and working in film and media education for more than two decades now. He has an eclectic range of interests and has contributed to journals and books, presented at conferences, written for specialist magazines and websites, interviewed key figures in exploitation cinema and contributed to several extras on Blu-ray releases of cult and classic films. I find Adrian's work really interesting in left field and I'm already obsessed with the Windmill Theatre in London about which Adrian has also written so I was really pleased when he agreed to chat with me. We're going to be talking today about exploitation cinema and the exploitation of cinema in its truest sense from the perspective of media marketing and Adrian talks in detail about what this actually means. Perhaps not surprisingly, given that I write and teach in the area, I'm absolutely fascinated by movie promotion techniques. And it's right there in the name, cinema exploitation, making the very most through showmanship and ballyhoo to get those audiences in. And that tendency towards showmanship has been there from the inception of the moving image in what Gunning refers to as the cinema of attractions, the peripatetic cinemas or mobile amusements that toured the US and Europe screened in tents by showmen at fairs, showgrounds and expos. Hello and welcome to Here's Looking at You. Uh, today I'm here with Adrian Smith. Thank you so much for agreeing to uh, to talk with me today about your project, which I know is sort of still in development. It's not quite pulled together completely, is it? So I guess in all sorts of ways, this is quite exclusive that we're talking about this. So I wonder if, first of all, then, we could talk a little bit about uh, yourself, the background that you came out of, your research interests, the kind of work you write, and if there are any particular scholars whose work has really influenced you over the years. Wow. Um, Okay. well, working backwards, um, one of the people that helped me quite early on was Leon Hunt. he was actually uh, somebody I'd made friends with at uh, some conferences, and then I started reading his stuff for my masters, and um, and then he ended up supervising me for a while on my PhD, and so um, that was really helpful to read his stuff. And then I also read Tim Bergfelder, um, who'd written a lot about German and European co-production in the kind of popular cinema world. And um, that helped me to sort of frame what it was that I was trying to do by looking at the European popular cinema and its distribution in the UK, which is where my um, my PhD ended up going. Um, but to get there, I'd also identified British uh, independent film distributors who I thought would make good case studies to kind of base this all around. And one of them were uh, Compton, the Compton group, who we'll talk more about today. And I've been interested in Compton and Compton films for a long time. Uh, There was a really good book written about Tony Tensor called Beasts in the Cellar about 15 years ago, I suppose. 
And that's probably the book I look at the most. Like I'm always referring back to that book. I've read it several times. And Tony Tensor was part of the Compton group. And all of those great films like Witchfinder General and uh, all sorts of things came out of that period. Um, working even further back, where did I come from? I Originally, I was really just interested in production. I thought I wanted to work in television and studied that at university. And my first job in this sort of area was as a media technician on a university campus um, up in Manchester. And I was helping students and staff all the time making uh, things work. And then that led to teaching them how to use equipment. And that's when I started to think, oh, I could probably just actually teach uh, for a living. So I then looked at doing a master's. I'd already finished my degree and everything. And I began to, my, my interest had always been in 60s and 70s cinema anyway, um, things like Hammer and Roger Corman and all sorts of stuff. So I just started researching in those areas and my master's, I ended up writing about AIP. Um, and then I met Norman J. Warren. And so my master's thesis ended up being about him. Uh, and I'd also written about film censorship and distribution in the late 60s and how the distributors had had an impact on the regulations that the BBFC were using. So all of these things were kind of mixed in together. Um, and I've been stuck in the 60s and 70s ever since, I suppose. <laughs> right Um So I first became aware of your work. I was aware of your name, but I, the first actual close encounter with your work was around the, the risque uh, Swedish art cinema uh, work that you were doing that you presented at the Sex and the Cinema conference at Kent a few years ago. So there seems to be this real sort of exploitation thread to your work. I wonder if maybe you could talk to the listeners a little bit around uh, the background to that and highlight any commonalities with the stuff that you're working with. You've already started to allude to this, but I wonder if you could... Yeah, um, it's kind of, I don't know, it's strange because uh, in some ways I'm reluctant to be that uh, exploitation guy or that sexploitation guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, I still end up writing about it all the time. So it's kind of fair enough that I've developed this reputation. Um, and I, at first, when I started doing my thesis, I was determined not to do sex exploitation because I'd, I'd written about it quite a lot, particularly in, um, when I did my master's dissertation on Norman J. Warren, because I did it on his sex films. And I purely did that because his horror films have been written about a million times but no one had written about Her Private Hell and those other films that he did. And so that was the initial sort of beginnings of me getting this reputation because I did a couple of papers at conferences about it. And and I guess, and you know, as academics, we're always looking for things to write about that haven't been written about to death already. And the exploitation world was kind of wide open for research. Uh, although there are a lot of people, obviously people like Xavier Mendick, uh, who've written extensively on those areas, but because there are so many films that kind of qualify as exploitation or cult, if you like, there are so many different avenues. There is still a, it's, it's still a pretty open field for making discoveries and um, finding a niche for yourself, I suppose. So that's how I ended up doing that with my um, with my PhD thesis. I was looking at uh, peplum films, so the sort of Italian Hercules kind of films 
And I was really interested in Euro spy films as well. And we'll talk more about why uh, in a minute, I think. Um, but I couldn't really ignore the fact that the vast majority of the European films that were imported into this country in the 60s and 70s were sex related or were certainly sold on their sex appeal. And so, and I ended up, and again, still I was resistant for a while, but I realized that I needed to put the word exploitation into the title of my thesis. But I was referring to it in its proper sense, if you like, from the point of view of the distributors and how they had product and they would exploit them. So these are exploitation films by the fact that the distributors have bought them cheap, ramped up the advertising, made glossy posters and sold them everywhere to make as much money as possible out of these quite cheap, not always very good films. And I've had to explain that to a lot of people, uh, particularly my mum, because <laughs> when you say exploitation films, she's just thinking, uh, you know, of it from the point of everyone seems to think it's the people in the films were being exploited. And I have to explain, no, it's actually a marketing term. Exploitation is about marketing and showmanship. And so that's what I was really interested in was these independent distributors like Compton and a few others I read about getting in these cheap films. Quite often they'd buy a big, like a big, just a big uh, job lot of films and then they would exploit them for all they were worth and make a lot of money uh, before moving on to the next cheap film. And so, um, so I have ended up writing a lot about exploitation films, but hopefully from the, that side of it, rather than just, oh, aren't these films great fun? Mm. Um, <laughs> which they are, but that's, I'm not so much, I, I've, I've become less interested in the films themselves from a, from a study point of view. I mean, I'll watch them and enjoy them sometimes, but I've been far more interested in the materials around the films and the context that the films were being screened in and who was watching them uh, and, and all that kind of thing. So, and to come back to what you, your sort of original question regarding the Swedish films, that was again um, a good example of that, that I was never, I didn't really want to write about C Swedish sex education films um, particularly, but I came across in the National Archives a, f a file about a court case involving one of the distributors that I was writing about and also one of the cinema chains that I'd ended up writing about for a book chapter that I'd been invited to do. And um, so I discovered that they'd been taken to court and charged with obscenity for screening this sex education film called More About the Language of Love at the JC Cinema on Charing Cross Road. So when I found that and I went to the National Archives and spent a day reading it all and laughing my head off a great deal, the material in there was amazing. And Nobody, as far as I could tell, had really ever gone in and read it before. And certainly, you know, I can't find anyone else that's written about it. And it's brilliant. It's eyewitness testimony from uh, police inspectors going into the cinema and describing who's in there, what it was like to watch the film. They watched it all the way through, but they talk about meeting the, the usher. They talk about what the what the lobby looked like, how the audience reacted to certain moments of the film. And that kind of eyewitness testimony of what was going on in a sex screening, if you like, is pretty hard to come by. You know, I've not found anything else like that in my research to that uh, amount of detail. So when I found this, I couldn't then not use it. It was gold. 
So, so I ended up doing a whole chapter about this case and the wider ideas of buying in education films and then marketing them as entertainment. Um, and I also compared it with Emmanuel, which was the same year, and it was distributed by the same small company. So they had the huge hit of Emmanuel, whilst they were also dealing with this court case over this Swedish film. And it was a very interesting contrast. It did mean that I had to watch the movies just to see what all the fuss was about, of course. <laughs> um, this is the thing when you watch so much of this stuff, you know, you think, oh, God, Benny, this is awful. Yeah. You know, but that doesn't stop it being interesting in other ways. But you're back to that sort of idea as well of, I mean, you must have this as well. People making an assumption that because you choose to write on this thing, you think this thing's amazing. You maybe approve of some of the messages that the films convey. Uh, you know, and you say, no, you know, yeah. that's not how this works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, they're fascinating films and, and kind of mind boggling that this was deemed acceptable. And it, they're really interesting documents of how things have changed, you know, and how what is socially acceptable has changed. I mean, like, for example, in more about the language of love, there is a whole sequence about how disabled people have sex. And there's a girl in a hospital, and I think she may have had polio, so she's got no use of her arms. And the nurse has her in a hoist, and they kind of help her so that she can then have sex with her boyfriend. And this is in this film as a kind of instructional sequence, right? which if you were showing this to doctors, you can sort of see the value of it. But this was then screening in the JC on the Charing Cross Road to... Um, an audience of who know you know of all kinds of people who are not doctors or med or medical professionals so it's really interesting how these things are taken out of context and then turned into entertainment and, and there were a lot of them I mean, they were german um sex education films even people like tony tenser had a go at making british instructional films um there it was this brief vogue for these things so, but yeah, but as obviously, as things to sit down and watch, they're not entertaining on a surface level, but they're kind of fascinating from a historical and cultural level. Mm, yeah, absolutely. At least that's what I, that's what I tell my mum anyway. <laughs> well, it's what I, you, 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 yeah, I mean, I don't know whether you've had to do this before, but I've had to watch stuff before, in, you know, in sort of stages, you know, first initial watch, before you even start to break it down, I'm like... This is this is driving me mad. Actually, I'll come back and I, and I'll keep coming back to this because it, it's angering me so much, or whatever you know. But yeah, they're, they're they're problematic texts, but that doesn't mean they're not worthy of consideration. In fact, they're probably even more so because of that that inherently problematic uh, nature. Well, yeah, and just and what it tells us about the audiences mm. at the time, I think, is interesting. I mean, these films were massively successful by the time the film was taken away by the police like they came and raided the cinema and took the film away mm. it had been screening for weeks and weeks and weeks like three times a day grave. Um, and, made, <clears throat> and made a fortune and it was a sequel right the previous film The Language of Love had already played for ages and been very successful and what was interesting was with more about The Language of Love it was playing with a certificate so it had actually been passed <laughs> um, like it wasn't an illegal screening so they were prosecuting something for obscenity that had actually been passed with a legal X certificate. So that was another reason why I thought the case was really interesting because it 
even at the time it was in all the national press, it almost caused the BBFC to kind of be disbanded. Right. Because if the BBFC could pass a film, but then it still be cro- prosecuted for obscenity, did that mean the BBFC was no longer fit for purpose? Oh, so this case raised all kinds of interesting questions. So although the film at the heart of it is creepy and weird, like there's another sequence I haven't even mentioned where they go to a school for blind children and they bring in a naked man and a naked woman who stand at the front of the class and the children are brought up and take it in turns to touch them all over, to feel the boys touch the woman and the girls touch the man. Oh, my God. Like properly, you know, all the bits getting really stuck in to see what the opposite sex feels like. Yeah. And the models are standing there very patient while these these blind children (laughs) take it in turns to touch them. Yeah. And that's all filmed and it's in the film. And then images from that scene were used as promotional material for the movie in magazine articles about the film whoa yeah in this country like in uh, (laughs) in cinema x there's a whole article about the movie which includes pictures from that so yeah so the films are bizarre that they would be screened in a uk cinema um and i just think that's really fascinating about what that tells us about our uh, our parents and grandparents generation i suppose (laughs) and what they what they got up to (laughs) (laughs) oh dear okay well um one of the other things i really wanted to talk to you about was your work around the windmill which is uh what i was referring to sort of at the very sort of top of the interview yeah uh this project that you're working on at the moment uh obviously you know that i've got this interest in the windmill as well Mm -hmm. um and you've recently written this piece on the secrets of a windmill girl it's called isn't it yeah um and I wonder if maybe you could talk to me a little bit about um, the project, but maybe also give a little bit of a pricey about the film itself, what the film does. I've seen it, but obviously our, our listeners probably won't have done. No. Um, given that it's not necessarily a film classic. Well, no, but of course they'll be rushing straight out after listening to this <laughs> to uh, to buy it on DVD. Um, yeah, so the film is really... Um, uh, it's an interesting again it's it's interesting rather than entertaining but it's um so it basically came out in 1965 uh 66 sorry it was shot in 65 and it was a Compton Films production so Compton they started their film company in 1960 with a private cinema club on the old Compton Road in Soho which is just around the corner from the windmill uh meanwhile in 1960 Vivian Van Damme who was the guy that ran the windmill, he died and the management passed to his daughter. And they were losing customers and things were getting a bit grim there as a, for the, the business. And eventually they closed down in 1964 and Compton bought the windmill uh, to turn it into a cinema and casino. So that was what was going on with the windmill. And then two years, uh, so when was this? 1963, I think it was, the filmmakers uh, Stanley Long and Arnold Louis Miller may, were making documentaries for Compton, and one of these was called Primitive London. And for that film, they went and shot sequences in the windmill. So they shot whole dances and the kind of interlude acts and all that stuff um, to use in the documentary, but then they didn't put it in. So these film cans were just sitting there with all this windmill footage. 
So I think it was Tony Tenser who suggested that they use this footage and the fact that they've just bought the windmill to make a film about the windmill before they start the cinema conversion. So that's why the film exists, basically. It was a, a way of capturing the the windmill in its original glory before they stripped it out and turned it into a cinema and also using up this footage that they'd already got of all the dances. So what that means is when you watch the film, there's a story because it was a narrative film and this was this was actually um, their first narrative feature film and um, you can sort of tell that, that they're not entirely sure what they're doing for some of the time. So when you watch the film, it's the story of two girls who are childhood friends um, played by April Wilding and Pauline Collins in one of her very first film roles. And um, so they want to be dancers and they grow up and they want to become dancers at the windmill. So they go and they audition. Eventually they both uh, get in. And um, one of the girls is quite sensible and the other one is kind of wild and desperate for fame and success. And because she's not getting famous and successful enough at the windmill, she goes off and gets an agent and ends up becoming a stripper and ends up at sex parties and then dies in a car crash with some drunk guy, uh, which we see at the beginning of the film, so that's not a spoiler. Um, the film opens with the car crash, and then we have this kind of flashback structure to tell us the story of how her life descended into this debauched um, hell that she couldn't escape from. Uh, intercut with lots of sequences of dances and comedians and singers um, at the windmill. And there's also, we also get to see the fan dance performed about 10 times. So if you've never seen the fan dance, you will know it intimately by the time the film is over. Yeah. <laughs> so what it means though is that there's a real disconnect between the two halves of this movie. So they've shot all their narrative stuff and they've, they've made a slight attempt to fit it with the um, with the old stuff, but it doesn't quite work. So for example, you see the girls in their costumes ready to go on the stage. So we see them backstage and then we cut to the stage where it's a dance number that they're not in and they're all in different costumes. So, And that happens a few times in the film. So like they walk onto the stage and then we cut to the real thing and they're not in it, different costumes. Very little attempt to create any kind of verisimilitude there, which is um, pretty funny. But yes, yeah, so, and it, the plot is typical of many of these kind of films. And this goes back to even the kind of American exploitation films of the 30s where, you know, things like Reef of Madness and stuff where you can revel in the the bad behaviour of the protagonists as long as they get punished at the end of the movie. And Compton had done a few of these films by this time because they, they did one called That Kind of Girl about a girl who contracts VD and then has to go around telling all the men she slept with. And there's also Beat Girl, where a young girl nearly ends up dead because she's crazy for jazz music. And there's Yellow Teddy Bears about preg a pregnant schoolgirl who tries to get an abortion and nearly becomes a prostitute and all this kind of stuff. So you're like, the, and, and the Secrets of Windmill Girl is no different. That It wants to show us this all this great windmill stuff and stripping and all these kind of scenes. But the way it's justified is by having them having at least one of them punished at the end. So the good girl, she's fine. It's actually, and what's funny is that they don't condemn the windmill. So it's not the windmill's fault. It's uh, the character Pat. It's her own fault 
for being desperate for fame that she kind of leaves the comfortable, safe surroundings of the windmill to go out on her own, where she ends up uh, getting into a lot of trouble. Whereas Linda, her friend, stays at the windmill where she um, is in love with Mike, played by Martin Jarvis, funnily, um, who's the stage manager. So she, so the windmill is kind of, is not the bad guy in this movie. It's She's purely a victim of her own greed and hubris, I suppose. But yeah, the poster, the poster for the film has her on the stay on the poster, like in her underwear, holding her head like she's got a migraine, as if, you know, she's stripping at the windmill and it's a terrible thing. But yet when you watch the film, the windmill's kind of lovely. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which actually in all sorts of ways fits with the image of the windmill that's, you know, sort of represented across various other media and indeed the image that the theatre itself sought to project that idea of sort of it was almost a family, wasn't it? Um, so you're, you've mentioned then this sort of how this text is problematic. It's reveling in the sort of the, the destruction of this this one particular girl. Uh, very generic, not really very good hmm. um, in terms of its production values, maybe issues with continuity, that sort of thing. Yeah. So what was it then that made you think, ah, I need to write on this? Well, it was a film that I was aware of but had never seen. Um, again, just because I'd read the book on Compton, The Beast in the Cellar has a whole section on Secrets of Windmill Girl. But then I, so going way back about seven or eight years ago, um, when I was still kind of kicking the idea of a PhD around, and I met a guy at a film fair who was selling, he had just a big box of stuff, posters, press books, all kinds of stuff, and I was rummaging through, and I came across a packet of material related to a film called Bonditis which was a film, again, I was aware of, but had never seen, which was distributed by Compton in 1967. And it's a Swiss-German uh, Euro spy comedy about a man who keeps having nightmares that he's James Bond. And so uh, so it's a kind of spoof about the, you know, the about James Bond and all, this, all those spy films of the 1960s. And so I got talking to this guy. I wanted to buy all this stuff. And he said I was the first person to ever show any interest in it. So he let me have it for a tenor, all this stuff he had. It was great. He had like dubbing scripts and um, photos and all sorts of stuff. And then he said, oh, I've got loads more from this film back in my office, which happened to be at Pinewood Studios, which was cool. So um, one day I arranged and went to visit him and he had these two suitcases full of stuff. And what it was, he told me that years earlier, he'd been asked to clear out a lockup in Soho somewhere and it was full of ephemera from the Compton offices and the company that had taken over Compton in the late 60s called uh, Cinecenter or Cinecenter, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, and he was told to just throw it all away. So he kept it and had been selling it off at film fairs ever since. So he had these suitcases full of stuff. So he, he let me, I basically, I think I went over, went to visit him twice. And for a couple hundred pounds, I bought everything that he had from Compton which included a packet of press cuttings from Secrets of a Windmill Girl, which had been cut out and collected at the time by a press cuttings agency. And I thought that was really interesting. So it was all stuff to do with the promotion of the film, sort of little promotional stunts that they had done, like they had two of the people go and stand on some scaffolding up at the top of the windmill for to pose for a photo for the press. Uh, one of them was a windmill girl and one of them was a guy from the movie. And there was just all different things. And there were photos of 
some of the other girls from the film whose names aren't in the credits, incidentally, so we would never know they were in it if it wasn't for this photo. And I was just really interested in in that I'd never really thought about press cuttings as a research tool before. And so that's what led me to write this um, paper. I was uh, I was contacted by somebody who was putting a journal together on the X-rated cinema of the 60s, and and they'd been, I'd been recommended to them, which, you know, was embarrassing. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> but I said fine. Or flattering, whichever you choose. To. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm shy. So um, I put a little proposal together for this paper based on these cuttings and then consequently completely forgot about it. And then about a year later, or maybe not a year later, a long time later, they emailed me to say, yes, we'd like you to go ahead and do this. And I had actually no memory of writing what I'd written. <laughs> I had to search back through my emails to check that they'd got the right person. But it turned out that I had, and then and it slowly came back to me. So I spent a while then working on it, and obviously I, I got a copy of the film because luckily it's out on DVD now. Um, and then I also, on one of my many research trips to the BBFC, I had a look at their archive, which was quite good. Actually, they had a lot of stuff about the film, documentation and letters and notes and all sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, so and, that, and that's most of my research and especially for my PhD, has been based on archival material. And so writing this paper was just the same process, basically, as I'd done for all the other stuff that I'd done. It was about researching the publicity material, any um, anything that I could find archi- that was archival from the BBFC or the National Archives or the GLC archives or wherever I could go, really. So, yeah, so I just I was just interested in writing about this from that perspective. Because again, I wasn't really interested in writing about the film itself and complaining about its lack of production values. <laughs> I mean, I've got a blog for that, so I could do that in my blog, but, <laughs> which I did. But in the in the paper, I was particularly interested in writing about the film from that perspective, looking at the, the marketing and the censorship and how it fitted within film, uh, film history, I suppose. Because mm. I think this kind of film is late. It was too late. It was probably dated because it didn't come out till 66, and I would imagine it felt quite dated for audiences. For a start, the windmill had already been closed for two years. But also this kind of moral message, kind of condemning the younger generation for their wild lifestyle, was pretty out of date, I think, even by then. And I think possibly the film uh, would have done better if it had come out in about 1962, 63. It would have perhaps... um, fitted better with that time. I think by 66, you know, we're only really a year away from Sergeant Pepper. And then you've got this kind of moralizing film from a, with the older generation condemning the young. And it just seems a bit like it doesn't really fit with conventional views of mid sixties popular culture. So that's what, that's why I was interested anyway. So um, let's, I just want to talk to you a little bit about your methodological approach that you've just sort of started to engage with then this very much, clearly interested in this idea of history through documents and I know you cite Sarah Street's work as being influential on you in that sort of aspect and we've talked about this previously as well that I I really love that technique as well I think it's a really useful teaching method as well so I'm just wondering if maybe you could um, offer any observations around the benefits and the drawbacks of this approach of sort of you know using um, various archival materials to sort of construct uh, a narrative around these 
benefits. Yeah. Well, I mean, for the benefits for me um, have been huge. I mean, my PhD wouldn't have existed without archival material because I, I wanted to do a PhD, but I had no idea how you do one. And like most of my education has been through um, just studying part time. So I didn't come straight out of uni and then go through a master's and a PhD and flow all the way through. So I've I'd been out of mains I've been out of mainstream education for a long time and didn't really know what I was doing. But I knew that I had a kind of kernel of an idea. And it was actually getting that packet originally, it was just getting all that Bonditis stuff. I just came home you know, with all the stuff that I bought just from that film. And that, and I was looking at it and I was thinking there might be something in this. And I'd also at around around the same time I'd visited the cinema museum in um, Elephant and Castle. Yeah. And they have an amazing archive. And just going there and looking at all these film posters that they had and lobby cards, and I knew that they had an archive there as well. And that really got me thinking, there's got to be something in the idea of publicity and distribution. Mm. Um, so that was this sort of kernel of an idea. Yeah. So I arranged to go to the cinema museum and said, I'm interested in looking at material to do with Compton. I didn't really know... I didn't have specific film titles in mind. I just wanted to see what they had. And in the in those kind of early days, before they'd properly settled on researcher rules, mm. they let me just help myself. So that I go in this room. It was a porter cabin, I think, <laughs> uh, full of filing cabinets. And I just sat in there all day just pulling stuff out. So they just had all of these press books in filing cabinets. And I could just find anything. I just, I was just pulling them out finding films I'd never heard of, would never have thought to look for. Um, but there they were, and the Compton name was on the press book. So I took oh, like a few hundred photos that day of all this stuff, and it was brilliant. And that was the beginning for me of the project, was identifying trends and particular genres that I could research and do more work on. And also it was sort of happenstance. And that's to come back to your question about the advantages and disadvantages. There's a lot of luck involved. Mm. Because this stuff was ephemeral, a lot of it was, doesn't exist anymore. I mean, a lot of the films don't exist either. But it's kind of luck as to whether something like a press book or like a press cutting, um, it's just luck as to whether it survived yeah. and whether you can find it. Mm. So like, for example, I contacted the families of these independent distributors that I wanted to research, and none of them had anything. Like there was no archive of their father or grandfather's business. It was all gone. Right. So the individual companies concerned hadn't kept anything. So it was really down to things like the cinema museum and like buying things at film fairs. Like I've also been a few times to the Westminster Film Fair and I've just got really lucky. I saw one guy selling a pile of old um, film and filming magazines and moviegoers and stuff like that. And I scrolled through and I flicked through and I found um, adverts from the Compton Film Club 1960. And I'm like, oh, great, right, buy that. Yeah. So it, it's really sort of lucky. So the, I, And I guess that also then influences what you research because if I've researched the films that I found stuff on, I also found a, uh, another guy was selling press books of sword and sandal films so i bought them and then i ended up writing extensively about those particular films just because i had some of the publicity materials related to those so the advantages are that it's great to have this first-hand material um, rather than try if you're interested in the history of it rather than i guess just watching the films and then making an educated guess as to 
how it might have been responded to at the time to actually have material. This is how you're supposed to market. You know, this is how they marketed it. This was who their intended audience was. All that kind of stuff. So, for example, with the Peplum films, I found that most academic writing on those movies is from a kind of homoerotic yes. perspective. Yeah. Yeah, because they're all you know oiled up, muscled men, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So most books that you read about that stuff, that's how it's written about. But I was able to argue that uh, because I had this advertising material, that in this country at least the films were being marketed towards children. Really? Yeah. They And they, for the most part, they all had a U or A certificate films. Yeah. And they were for sort of children's matinees. It wasn't this kind of, they weren't aimed at a gay subculture or a bodybuilding culture or anything like that, you know. Mm. They were family movies. So I was able to argue against the prevailing discourse of that genre by using archival evidence to back me up. Mm rather than looking th at it from a sort of from the lens that everyone else seems to look at them from. Yeah. So that was one example for me of where I could present an argument and have some actual hard evidence to back me up, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. So so the advantages are many and I just really like having this stuff and I find it quite inspirational to have it uh, around. But the disadvantages are that where stuff doesn't exist, films and filmmakers or distributors just get lost in the history because there's nothing left to represent them. Okay, so you you, you know you, you're talking around this idea of of collecting then and how that's integral to um, the way that you've undertaken your research. Mm -hmm. um, I was just wondering, you know, you said that you've collected these various items. Um, what attribute makes an item jump out at you? Um, you know, what is it that you tend to collect? I would have to say price. Right. <laughs> <laughs> ultimately you know if i'm if i've been collecting stuff myself then yeah it, it was because the problem is particularly film posters like i would love to have had more quad posters in my collection from some of these films but the trouble is in the last 10 15 years the value of these things has gone up immensely i mean they used to be very cheap and because they had no value and obviously and obviously that's changed now and film posters go for small fortunes. So um, that that is a problem if you're wanting to collect things. Luckily, there are archives where you can at least look at posters and get an idea. And I've been lucky that I have come across some like in just random places. Like there's a little shop. Where, uh, I live in Eastbourne. There's a little shop where this guy just has all kinds of old stuff, coins, stamps, books, comics. And I found a box of um, film photos and then another box, another time I visited, of film posters. And so he had a load of uh, front of house stills for an Italian Euro spy film called From the Orient with Fury. And then a few months, so I bought them all, not knowing if I would use them, but they were like a pound each, so it was great. And then a few months later, I visited again and I found a different box that had film posters in, all just folded up and chucked in this box. And I found the original quad poster for the same film. And that film became one of the central films of my whole dissertation. In fact, I ended up writing two chapters about the Euro spy film based primarily on that film. And it's two, um, they're like, it's like a trilogy of films. So again, that's another example of luck, really. But those were all very cheap. But if, that, if I'd met that guy in London, he would have been selling that poster for about £100 or something. So it just wouldn't have happened. So... 
a lot of it is is really just luck and being in the right place at the right time. I've never yeah. I've never had a systematic approach and I don't really buy this stuff anymore now, particularly because my PhD is finished and also because my house is relatively small and there's a there's a limit to where I can keep it all. <laughs> yeah. I mean but also a lot of it really has been luck. I, I worked with a guy who was about to retire and he had collected from when he was young pretty much an entire run of monthly film bulletin from the late 1940s all the way up to the 1980s and he was keeping this in a filing in a big filing uh, cabinet uh, at the college where I worked and we were he was a film lecturer and I was a media lecturer and when he and I'd borrowed some of these off him because I was really interested in it and then when he was retiring he didn't want to take them home so he just let me have them so I've now got my own entire run of the monthly film bulletin, which is great. Um, I would never have bought that. Yeah. If some, you know, I imagine an entire run of those things is probably quite valuable. Yeah. Um, and normal. So we're back to look again. Yeah, and if I'd have to, if I wanted to look anything up normally, I would either have to go to the BFI or pay for the online subscription. But now I've just got them in a box. <laughs> so again that's pure luck on my part that I happened to know this guy and he had them and I'd shown an interest in them so I suppose to answer your question um, no I don't have a method I've mainly just bought stuff if I thought it was interesting or if I'd heard of the film or particularly once I knew who my distributors were yeah. I was buying stuff if their names were on it which was Compton um, Gala or Kenneth uh, Rive or EJ Fancy and his many different companies that his family had, like New Realm and SF and people like that. So if I saw things, you quite often front of house, uh, front of house stills are still are quite cheap to buy. So I've got several of those from these different companies, and occasionally I get lucky and see because a, a lot of the films that I've written about are not collectible films. If I'd wanted to write about James Bond, <laughs> there'd have been no way. Yeah that I could have built up an archive of, of that material. But picking up a press book for an obscure French romance from 1964 that no one else has ever wanted to buy yeah. means you can get it for a couple of quid. So that's another advantage of writing about stuff that no one else is interested in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess it's financial as well as academic. So so I've now just, now that I've finished my um, thesis, I've just got this collection of stuff that I'm not entirely sure what to do with. So it's been it's been nice to have an excuse to write about the Windmill Girl yeah. uh, using this material because I'd had I've got these clippings that are just sitting there, yeah. gathering dust. Otherwise, so it was good to be able to get those out and think right, what can I do with these? And I've got other things in the collection that at some point I can do similar things with, or and I have done for a couple of other journals in the past with other bits that I picked up. So stuff that didn't fit directly into my thesis. I've been able to use elsewhere, which has been good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for uh, you know taking the time to talk with me about that. That's that's brilliant. Uh, I guess as a sort of closing question, have you got uh, another project that you're starting work on, or at the moment are you having a little bit of a break? Or? Um, well, I'm just finishing up an article, a journal article about, or is it a book chapter? I can never. No, I think it's a book chapter. This one. Um, about the yellow teddy bears, which is a another Compton film that I mentioned earlier, um, and that one originally was in my thesis, but I had to take it out. So now it's um, I did a paper on it last year, and now that's becoming a book chapter. 
And again, another thing that I've like I really like to do with my with my thesis, I wasn't just interested in archive material. I was interested in talking to people who were still alive, yeah. who remembered this stuff. So I spent a lot of detective work and time tracking down people and interviewing them. Um, and I put all those interviews in the back of my thesis, and they are probably the best bit, to be honest. Um, and so when I wrote about the yellow teddy bears, uh, the star of the film was Annette Whiteley, who was a schoolgirl at the time. And she went on to have a brief career. She appeared in a in a Hammer film and did a couple of other things. Um, and I found her, and it turned out she lived in Hastings, uh, which is only sort of 15 miles down the road from me. So I went to her house and she showed me all this stuff that she still had from the movie. And uh, it was really fun to talk to her about that. And, um, so I have written this chapter about that film, but focusing, again, not so much on the film itself, but on the um, the marketing of the film, because what they did, it was really interesting. They sold the film in the press as being a tool for conversation that parents should talk to their children about sex right. and that not enough was being done in the home or in schools to educate school children about sex. So this was in 1963. And as part of that, what they did was they had screenings in, um, it was mainly they did a big screening in Birmingham with sixth form schoolgirls from all around the area were bussed in and they did a screening with uh, doctors and sort of professionals and also Annette Whiteley. So she was there as well to talk to these schoolgirls about the movie and about sex and about talking to, about sex with your parents yeah. and all this kind of stuff, um, which I felt was a really unique sort of case. That, that yeah. As far as I can tell, that's never been done before or since that a, what's basically an exploitation film was being sold as an educational tool. But again, this is something that the American films were doing 20 years earlier. And if you think about things like Mom and Dad yeah. and all these these kind of American films where they would actually have pretend doctors introducing the film and they would be dressed dressed up as educational tools. And here was a similar thing happening in Britain. So I thought that was really interesting. And to be able to then also, as well as having archival material and the BBFC material, I was able to talk to her and see what she remembered about meeting these schoolgirls in Birmingham was really, for me, it was really fascinating. So um, again, so, oh, and also the film had a massive premiere. Right. And um, Robert Mitchum was at the premiere. Really? Uh, yeah. But what's really funny is that they had strippers dressed as schoolgirls at the premiere oh, as well. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So it's like any pretense at public good <laughs> was it was kind of really severely undermined <laughs> by their own their own promotional uh, stunts. Yeah. So I'd read that this was the case, but Annette Whiteley had photos from the premiere that she was able to let me use. Yeah. So I've got photos of her and of Robert Mitchum um, and of the schoolgirls, you know, all this stuff. So it's it's great. So this is, and I guess that partly comes back to your question about methodology. Mm. I'm really keen to talk to people whilst, I mean, the same with you, I know. Mm. It's important that we interview these people because they're getting older. Yeah. And the 60s is now 50, 60 years ago. And so if we're not careful, things, people's experiences can just get completely lost. And so I've been very keen to, talk to people and get first-hand experience of um, what they remembered. And that's played a big part in my PhD, 
Uh, and now also this thing I've just been doing on the yellow teddy bears. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I, I really look forward to uh, to reading that. that. That sounds like that's going to be really, really interesting stuff. Thank you. And, you know, really potential case study maybe for uh, for my students to use for their film history uh, module. Great. That sort of stuff that I always find they're fascinated in. Yeah. You know, th- this is the thing with this sort of stuff. You know, it, it's so readable. It's such a, a compelling narrative, isn't it? You know, they're, they're doing such ridiculous and over-the-top things in certain instances, you know, to sort of market these films. That You know, it just actually makes for a really quite a fun read, yeah. you know. I think so. That's why I keep doing it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Oh, please do keep doing it. I find this stuff fascinating to read about. Thank you. Um, Right, well, thank you so much for your time, Adrian. It's hugely appreciated. I think that's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, So your your paper itself and the, the work that's coming out is around the yellow teddy bears, then, if people want to keep an eye out for that. Uh, yeah, it's going to be in a collection... Um, called, I think it's called Researching Historical Audiences. Lovely. Or something like that, put together by the uh, University of Aberystwyth. Brilliant. Great. And the and the Secrets of the Windmill Girls paper uh, is due to be in a journal at some point, but I, su- I submitted it a year ago, and I'm still not entirely sure when it's going to be published. <laughs> so um, watch this space. Thanks very much to Adrian for making time to chat with me. I love his focus on marketing, industrial as well as cultural imperatives and the way in which his work makes us consider cultural distinctions and the kinds of texts that really flirt with the boundaries of propriety. If you're interested in finding out more about Adrian's work, I'd recommend his superb 2018 essay, The Language of Love, Swedish Sex Education in 1970s London, in the journal Film Studies. All that remains is for me to say thanks to John Ashbrook of Radio Pictures for his editing and mixing... Right, we'll start that bit again. All that remains is for me to say thanks to John Ashbrook of Radio Pictures for his editing and mixing skills and his patience with me. (laughs) As I keep fucking things up. (laughs) To Adrian for agreeing to chat with me about such a fascinating topic. To the Shannon Riley Trio for allowing me to use their song Trouble as the Here's Looking at You theme tune, and to you for listening to the podcast. Feel free to offer your opinions or suggestions for potential interviewees on Twitter at Dr Smut or on the Here's Looking at You website where you can also sign yourself up to be updated when the latest podcast drops. I'll be back soon for another conversation about the intersection of gender, sexuality and performance in film, TV and theatre. So until next time, here's looking at you.